and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned that eating late at night affects your skin's sensitivity to the sun. I know, right? Like, why does your skin care when you eat? There are some effects of midnight snacking that I totally get, like the fact that it can throw off your body's circadian rhythms. All those late night calories keep your body up and digesting instead of sleeping soundly, which can then go on to mess with your memory and efficiency the next day. Well, it turns out your skin's biology also has a natural rhythm, and midnight snacks are throwing a wrench in there. In a study using mice from UT Southwestern, researchers gave some mice food during the day, which is abnormal considering that mice are nocturnal. Another group of mice ate as they normally do at night. Then the two groups were exposed to ultraviolet B light, and researchers found that the daytime mice sustained more skin damage when exposed to that UVB light during the day than their night-noshing buddies. This sunburn effect is likely because of an enzyme that repairs UV-damaged skin, known in shorthand by its letters XPA. The XPA enzyme is tied to a circadian rhythm in your skin, so that it's working harder during the day when the body is up and at and weaker at night when the body is supposed to shut down. So when the mice ate at abnormal times, that daily cycle had to shift so that the XPA enzyme was less active when the mice needed it most. Meanwhile, the mice who fed at their normal evening times didn't seem to have any change in the enzyme cycle at all. Now, it is hard to translate the findings directly to humans at this point. Researchers note that more studies have to be conducted. But... The study does suggest that eating schedules affect how well the skin is protected from the sun's harmful UV rays, and more vulnerability to sunburn can lead to longer-term effects like skin aging and skin cancer. So at the very least, keep the findings in mind the next time you feel the need to nosh at night before a day at the beach. This week I learned that human and mammal parents hold their babies on the left. It doesn't matter if you're left-handed or right-handed, as many as 80% of new human parents will pick up their baby and hold them on their left side. What's interesting is that for women, it didn't matter if they were mothers or not. Non-mothers, mothers of older children, and even young girls tended by a vast majority to carry a baby or a doll on the left side. But men and boys do not. That is, until they become fathers. A recent extensive study building on previous studies of this left bias positioning looked at a wide cross-section of mammals to see if they do the same thing. They looked at horses, walruses, whales, and kangaroos, and many more. And the researchers there, too, found that these female mammals also hold their kin to the left, or they swim, or they run, whatever it is, the baby is kept to their left side. And that's because of the brain. 
According to the University of Tasmania researchers, your left eye sends signals to your brain's right hemisphere. Now, both hemispheres interact in the process of emotions to some degree, but it's the right side of the brain that is tasked with all the important communication and bonding stuff, like analyzing social signals and emotional information, like trying to get at the nuances of a baby's cry. The left eye right hemisphere system provides higher accuracy and speed for many types of social responses. So by keeping the baby on the left in that left visual field, the animal or human parent has optimal monitoring control over this little helpless squish. Because researchers found this mechanism to be so widespread, they suggest it is one of the most ancient evolutionary parenting tools. As for men, well, previous studies found that men did not have such a left side bias with kids. Some of this was chalked up to a lack of experience, but researchers at the time also suggested that perhaps a man's right side was more hardwired for other survival tasks. But another study found that while males showed no preference for holding babies to the left side before becoming parents, once they did cross over to fatherhood, they showed a significant preference to left side holding as well. Perhaps suggesting here that the priorities shift for men when a newborn comes into play. There may be other benefits to the left side too. Previous research points to the fact that being so near to the parent's heart has positive health effects on a baby, including less crying and better weight gain. This week I learned that Walt Disney was one of the top American propaganda creators during World War II. Our fighting men must have your help. They need more tanks, more planes, more guns, more shells. Never was the need more urgent. Invest in war saving certificates today. Oh, yes, you. Disney had served in the First World War, so he was certainly a patriot, ready and willing to help his country. And that motivation is definitely a part of his impressive output. But Disney didn't also have much of a choice at the time either. For one, as the war descended, overseas revenues were quickly drying up. And after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the army literally took over one of Disney's largest sound stages, turning it into a base for anti-aircraft troops. And with that, the studio was devoted almost entirely to the war effort. Of course, Disney wasn't alone. Much of Hollywood was turned into a propaganda machine, working alongside the newly created Bureau of Motion Picture Affairs. Studios turned out feature films, training videos, and shorts with patriotic, moral-boosting themes. Themes like the nature of the enemy were designed to make Americans hate Nazis and the Japanese so much that they would do anything to help the United States defeat them. But there was an interesting nuance there. Films like 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, starring Spencer Tracy, and Destination Tokyo, starring Cary Grant, used derogatory terms and vilified, duplicitous characters to spread racism and make Americans hate the Japanese. In Destination Tokyo, for example, an American pilot is stabbed to death by a Japanese pilot after making the mistake of trying to rescue his enemy. I hear Japs are happy to die for their emperor. A lot of them are going to be made very happy. But on the other side, for movies that targeted Nazis, well, they had the innocent Germans in mind. 
the government wanted Americans to understand that Germans and Nazis were different, and Germans needed America to liberate them from their controlling evil overlord. In Walt Disney's short film, Education for Death, The Making of the Nazi. What makes a Nazi? How does he get that way? Well, let's look into the process. To begin with, Nazi control over a German child starts as soon as it's born. Nazis are depicted as controlling, brainwashing, overbearing rulers, and Germany is the innocent trapped under its power. The beautiful princess is Germany. And the brave, handsome knight, you know who he is. Nazis are depicted as controlling, brainwashing, overbearing rulers, and Germany is the innocent trapped under their power. Disney got all of his beloved characters involved in the war effort. In the short film, Der Fuhr Face, Originally titled Donald Duck in Nazi Land, Donald Duck dreams he's in a nightmare scenario where he's working at a Nazi-run factory. Is this not wonderful? Is not our Führer glorious? Heil Hitler! What's that you say, Schweinhund? Verdammte Esel! Heil Hitler! The film, which won the Academy Award for the Best Animated Short Film in 1943, was made to help sell war bonds. By some estimates, between short films, training videos, and other animated contributions, Disney and his team created something like 68 continuous hours of educational war film for all branches of the military. Disney also had his artists draw up roughly 1,200 cartoon-themed patches, free of charge, which were then sent to troops abroad. In some images, Mickey Mouse rides a goose, which was a symbol of a bomber, in front of the Statue of Liberty. But Donald Duck was by far the most requested character, coming to represent minesweepers, naval officers, pilots, and torpedo launchers all in an effort to boost troop morale and remind them of the things they loved and were fighting for at home. This week I learned that the unit of measurement for sound is different when it's in the water versus when it's in the air. The intensity of sound is measured in decibel units, or simply dB. But the noise scale underwater is very different from the noise scale in the air, so it can be misleading to compare the two, which is a mistake I made back in episode 44, when I shared the recent discovery of a shrimp that makes one of the loudest sounds in the ocean. The Sinelpheus pink floydy quickly opens and snaps shut its large claw, and this generates a sonic energy that can reach up to 210 decibels. This is super loud. It's louder than a typical rock concert. It's also louder than a jackhammer, lawnmower, and a chainsaw, which are only half the amount of decibels. A jet engine produces 150 decibels at takeoff, and 150 decibels is usually considered enough to burst your eardrums. 
So that shrimp is still very loud. It's just not as loud as you might think because the units of sound in air and in water are different. This is Jennifer Cooper. I am a PhD in acoustics and I work at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, primarily working to make sure our submarines are safe and undetected. Jennifer knows a thing or two about measuring sound underwater and recently she wrote me this incredibly detailed and fantastically interesting email about the difference between those two sound units. The units are 26 dB different, so something that's 150 dB in air would be 176 dB in water. Therefore, that shrimp sound is 210 dB in the water is 184 dB uh, in air, which is still very, very loud. You should not stand next to it. It's just not quite as loud as it sounds. But this ratio isn't the only reason why the noise scale of this shrimp would be different from certain seemingly equivalent air noise. The shrimp sound is very short in duration, whereas uh, something like a jet engine or a rock concert are very long and continuous in duration. And the real things that impact your hearing or the impact of sound on you or on a marine mammal is the amount of energy that's in the sound. And that um, you have to sum it over time. You have to factor in how long the sound is. So something that's very, very short has less total energy in it than something that is prolonged. If Jennifer has piqued your interest in the science of sound under the sea, there's a website you can check out. There's a great website called dosits.org, D-O-S-I-T-S dot org. And that stands for Discovery of Sound in the Sea. And it has a lot of more detailed information that's sort of at a layman's level. And it has some sounds of what different animals sound like. It's pretty cool. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank Jennifer Cooper for walking me through the science of sound underwater and sharing her expertise with our audience. And dear audience, I'd also like to invite you, all you expert or amateur scientists listening out there, to contact me at any time with facts that you've learned, interesting tidbits, or of course, corrections. I am always eager to learn. You can reach me at podcast at theweek.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, both plural and singular. We'll get you there. Just make sure to include the word podcast in the subject. And for more on any of the facts I've mentioned today, you can go to theweek.com slash podcast, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainer series. And as a thank you for listening to this episode, we'd like to offer you four risk-free issues of The Week magazine. To get started, visit theweek.com slash for free. I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 